Hello, and thanks for listening to this podcast. My name is Karen Killaly. I am a partner and head of the employment team at Maples and Calder Ireland, the Maples Group's law firm in Dublin. If you are listening in from your usual podcast app, you will find any resource documents that I mentioned and speaker information in the description. If you've clicked on the media player link sent to you by email, you can find this information in the notes section. So let's jump straight in. As businesses are still in full swing, preparing for year end in many cases and trying to get projects over the line before 2024 rolls around, the Christmas and holiday party appears in our calendars, mostly as a welcome opportunity to toast the holidays and we can celebrate a busy year and kick back with our co-workers. It's perhaps only employment lawyers and human resource professionals who are guilty of maybe thinking quite a lot about the seasonal celebrations and putting them under the microscope to determine if they're a good or a bad idea. In this episode, I'm definitely not going to pass judgment on whether a Christmas or holiday party is a good or bad idea. But what I do want to do is share some tips and guidance for employers in Ireland from an Irish employment law perspective to look at common questions that arise in practice in relation to events that take place outside of work but are still very much connected to work. So what do we need to think about? The first question I think to ask is what events are connected to the workplace and what events are not connected to the workplace? One of the most typical situations, just to back up a little bit, that we would see in January is clients coming to us with questions around perhaps grievance and complaints arising out of alleged conduct at Christmas parties or holiday parties or dinners and all of the various seasonal celebrations that happen at this time of year. There's a couple of common questions that arise. First of all, is it connected to the workplace? If an issue has arisen, how do we respond to that? Is this a personal matter? Is it a work-related matter? Do we have to investigate it? The answer to all of those questions are really It depends. It depends on a couple of things. First, to what extent is the employer involved in the event, in the party or the dinner or whatever the event is at which the incident is alleged to have happened? So what's the level of involvement? And the second piece to look at is what is the impact or potential impact in the workplace of the incident that is now complained about? Is it spilling over into work relationships? Is it affecting terms and conditions of employment? Let's look maybe at the first question and That is to determine whether a social event is in fact work-related. Broadly, if a party or a dinner or an event is a work-related event, then yes, it definitely comes within the remit of the employer to respond to and to respond to appropriately where a problem arises. If the event is not a work-related event, then it does not. But the challenge in practice can be to determine whether or not on the facts an event that employees go to or attend at is in fact a work-related event. That's not necessarily straightforward. Let's take an easy one. A work Christmas party is most definitely a work-related event. But a private social event that's organised by and takes place without the knowledge of the employer, without any financial sponsorship and without any control, and, and maybe without any knowledge at all as to its existence or who's at it, how can that be said to be a work-related event? And after party, for example, long after the Christmas party has ended, is that a work-related event? These are all really tricky situations and they very much depend on the facts. And really those questions can only be answered when all the relevant information is known. And typically it takes an investigation in order to bring all of those together. But in the meantime, let's kind of park those questions, maybe just keep them at the back of our mind and let's see what can we learn from the case law on this. 
what the case law has always focused on in Ireland is the connection between the event, the party or the social event and the workplace. Obviously, the connection can take many forms, but one of the most obvious connections is where an event is clearly branded as a workplace event and where attendance at the event is expected. That's easy enough and that makes sense. Another obvious connection is where there's financial sponsorship by the employer of the event. But even where there's no financial sponsorship and it's not organised by the employer, it can still be deemed by a court here to be work-related. And sometimes what the adjudication officers or the judges will apply is a, in inverted commas, but-for test. In other words, but-for the employee being employed, would they have been at the party or the workplace event? For example, in the case of Maguire versus Northeastern Health Board, which is quite an old case dating back to 2002, the employer had argued in this case that it was not involved in the organisation of a Christmas party and that it had made no financial contribution towards it. And the equality officer at the time was actually satisfied in that case that the Christmas party was a work-related event because applying the but-for test the equality officer found that the complainant simply would not have been present at the party but for the employment with the respondent organisation. If we look at another interesting case from 2008, again, a decision of the Equality Tribunal, it's a case called a female employee versus a recruitment company. The complainant had claimed that she had been discriminated against in relation to her conditions of employment in that she had been sexually harassed at a small post-work drinks gathering that took place. She also claimed that she had been victimised as a result of making the complaint of sexual harassment arising out of conduct that she said occurred during that sort of small gathering and she was ultimately dismissed by her employer. So what happened here was a classic case. A number of colleagues all went to a pub after work and they had some drinks and the attendees included the complainant. She had only been with the company for just over a month. Her line manager was there, some other colleagues and some other non-employees as well. So it was a mixed group. It wasn't just employees. It wasn't something that had been organised as such by the employer. The employer didn't know of this event. It was a relatively casual social gathering. The event continued until the early hours of the following morning and the conduct complained of was that the complainant had received a number of what she said was unwanted and offensive and explicit text messages from her line manager. So she complained about these and she wanted them at her investigated. One of the issues was whether or not this social gathering actually happened in the course of employment. Was it connected to the employment? So the equality officer was satisfied on the evidence that the complainant had been sexually harassed. And then in looking at the question of whether or not this actually took place in the course of employment, the equality officer looked at the statutory code, which is extremely helpful. And you'll find it in the resource section to this podcast, which made it clear that work-related events included training and social events. And when she looked at the facts, she found that the complainant and the other employees from the respondent company were on a social work night out. She found that the complainant would not have been present. She wouldn't have been there, but for her employment with the respondent organisation. So she found on the facts that the actions of her line manager were in fact carried out in the course of their employment. And she also noted that The actions may have been carried out without the employer's knowledge or approval, but she said that didn't matter. She still found that the employer was liable 
for the actions of the, the perpetrators. Another interesting case which deals with the issue of kind of this, this trickier issue of after parties or impromptu social gatherings which don't necessarily have the, if you like, permission or authorization or sponsorship of an employer is the case of a beverage company versus a worker. And this is a May 2021 decision. So it's one of the more recent decisions in the area. This case relates to an unfair dismissal rather than harassment specifically, but it's a really interesting decision. And again, there's a link to this decision in the resources section of the podcast. It's interesting because it looks at some of the authorities. So it helps us kind of understand what are the principles you need to apply when you are faced with a situation where you're trying to figure out, is this a work-related event or not? So one of the cases that this decision reflects on is the decision in Crow versus on Post. And it looks at this close connection test in the context of trying to decide whether misconduct outside of the workplace is connected to the workplace. So I think it's worth me just reading very briefly an extract from that judgment. In that judgment, court said, a dismissal for misconduct outside the workplace can only be justified where there is a sufficient connection between the crime committed and the employee's work in such a way that would render the employee unsuitable or capable of damaging the employer's reputation. The guiding principle in cases involving misconduct outside the workplace is that the employer must be able to show a connection between the misconduct and the company's operational requirements. So that's a super clear expression of the connection test. And in that case, the employee claimed that she had been assaulted by a co-worker after a work-related party. So the employer had initiated an investigation in response, quite correctly. And following on from that investigation, there was a disciplinary procedure. And the disciplinary procedure related, obviously, to the alleged perpetrator. And the alleged perpetrator then was ultimately dismissed. Now, he challenged his dismissal. And in particular, he made the argument that actually there wasn't a connection between the alleged misconduct, he denied any wrongdoing, and the and the workplace. So, so the WRC in that case had to look at the circumstances. And when they looked at the circumstances of the alleged assault, they determined that it had happened in the course of employment. And the reason that they determined that was because they had regard to the following factual matters. First of all, they said, well, look, the alleged event occurred in a hotel room where the complainant had been spending the night after a Christmas party. The employer had organised the party and had paid for it. The employer had invited all employees to the party and they went so far as to arrange for the complainant's work schedule. So the original complainant, the employee who, who claimed she was assaulted, they had arranged for her work schedule to be altered so she'd be free to accept the invitation to the party. In addition, the original complainant had taken up a discounted rate for her hotel room, which had been negotiated by the employer with the hotel for the benefit of the employees. So the employer was trying to do right by the employees and make sure they were safe after the party. But in all of those circumstances, the court concluded that the event was in fact sufficiently connected with the employment so as to mean that for the purposes of this particular case, the misconduct had occurred in the course of the employment and as such, the disciplinary policy could be invoked and, and so forth. The court also noted that the alleged assault in question did have the potential to impact on employee relations in the workplace. It had the potential to cause reputational and other damage to the employer and to bring the employer's name into 
ill repute, for example, if there were reports in the in the media about this. They also found that it was sufficient to cause the employer to genuinely lose trust and confidence in the alleged perpetrator. So again, I think that's a very helpful and clear and relatable example of when a court is likely to find that something has a close connection to the workplace. It's not any great surprise, really, and just bringing the conversation, if you like, back into the context of the Employment Equality Acts and harassment and preventing harassment and sexual harassment, it is good to bear in mind that Section 15 of the Employment Equality Act makes it clear that anything done by a person in the course of their employment is treated for the purposes of the Employment Equality Act as done by the employer, whether or not it was done with the employer's knowledge or approval. So there's a, there's a type of statutory direct liability, if you like, for these events. It's always useful to look at the case law, however, because sometimes the facts are not always very clear cut and each case must absolutely be decided on its own facts. There's another decision that I just want to briefly touch on as well. As I say, these are all very fact specific, but it's good nonetheless to understand the principles that are applied. The The decision in Ms. A versus a public house and Mr. B, this is, I'm going to say this is a 2012 decision, so it's, it's quite an old decision. But in any event, this situation was that a group of colleagues celebrated their Christmas party in January. So they didn't have it in December because it was a busy time for them in their business. Interestingly, in this case, the employer said that it had absolutely no knowledge of the party, never paid for it, didn't know anything about it, made no logistical or other arrangements in relation to it. Instead, a manager within the business had used tips and had used his own money, tips that the employees had um, collected, and his own money to fund the party. So it was almost like a self-funded event. But despite that, the equality officer in this case found that the employer did not submit any evidence that the employer had actively prevented the party from taking place or set any guidelines around the party. The equality officer also found that this was not the first time this party had actually been held. It had been held for many years and it was organised by quite a senior manager within the business. So even if the employer per se did not know about it, the factual position was all of the employees attended it. It started at the workplace. A bus took the employees to the party venue and based on all of the above factors, no surprise, it was reasonable for the complainant in the equality officer's view to have understood that she was attending a work-related event. All of these principles are, are set out quite helpfully in a statutory code of practice on harassment and sexual harassment at work, which was published in 2022 by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. That is also in the resource section to this podcast episode. And it's a very useful guide for employers in Ireland on how to recognise and prevent sexual harassment in the workplace, regardless of the season. And it also explains the breadth of the concept of whether or not something is done in the course of employment. So I certainly would encourage listeners to to take a look at the code of practice. Next, so, we, so we've looked at the whole issue of whether something happens in the course of employment or not. So what next if there is a complaint arising from a work-related social event? Well, I'm going to deal with this relatively briefly because we've already looked in more detail at workplace investigations, including both disciplinary and harassment investigations in previous podcast episodes, which you will find on the um, Maples Group website and the podcast platforms. But suffice to say that it's not always the case, but it is very common 
for problems which arise at work-related social events to result in a requirement to conduct a formal workplace investigation. And that is very typically, certainly in our experience, an investigation under the dignity at work policy. Okay. And then further, depending on the outcome of that investigation, it may be necessary to invoke the employer's disciplinary procedures where the investigation reveals that there has been or appears to have been misconduct. So again, I would encourage listeners to listen to our earlier podcasts, which deal with those areas in in some more detail. But just to recap, I, I think a couple of pieces that are worth calling out from an Irish law perspective, just to bear in mind that sexual harassment happens primarily where the conduct is unwanted. So it is very much a subjective test in this jurisdiction. It is looked at from the perspective of the receiver of the conduct. And the test is ultimately whether the conduct has the purpose or effect of violating a person's dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for the person. Very much the the, the test looks at the effect on the person rather than the intention of the perpetrator. So, so that's what counts. And just to illustrate that maybe in a little more colour, the Labour Court case of Nail Zone Limited versus a worker really underpinned the subjective nature of the test. And in that case, it was stated, you know, whether or not the conduct would have produced the same result in a person of greater fortitude than the complainant is irrelevant. The effect that was intended is irrelevant. It is the receiver's interpretation of the uh, conduct which is key. Another point that's important to um, emphasize is that unlike with the legal definition of bullying, which generally must really evidence a campaign or a pattern of inappropriate behavior, from an Irish employment law perspective, a single once-off incident can constitute sexual harassment. Also good to note that the protection against harassment afforded under the Employment Equality Act covers all employees, whether full-time or part-time, permanent or temporary, and does include agency workers. Unlike in some other jurisdictions, there's another distinguishing feature of equality law in Ireland, and that is that an employer in Ireland can be liable for sexual harassment that is perpetrated by a co-worker or by a client or a customer or a contractor or someone with whom the employee comes into contact in the course of their employment, where the employer ought reasonably to have taken steps to prevent this occurring. So it's not employee versus employee harassment that this concept is confined to. It's actually a little bit broader than that. Harassment constitutes unlawful discrimination on the part of the employer and sexual harassment is unlawful discrimination on the gender ground. So they're very serious issues. And and therefore, what can and should an employer do in relation to work-related events where they do have responsibility for what happens, as we've seen, where it can lead to situations where perhaps a complaint of harassment or sexual harassment arises, and where it arises, if you like, in a situation, as evidenced by the case law, where sometimes, although the employer has responsibility, they don't necessarily have control. It's a tough ask. So what are the sort of key tips and guidance, therefore, for employers in Ireland? Let me maybe outline a little bit what the sort of key legal defences are when when a situation like this arises. So the key defence for the employer is to prove that it took such steps as were reasonably practicable to prevent the harassment, okay? 
And in circumstances where an employee complains that they have been treated differently in the workplace as a result of the harassment, the employer must then also take steps to prevent the employee from being treated differently. So in effect, being discriminated against. And the employer must also reverse the effects of the harassment. So there's absolutely no doubt that it is more straightforward to prevent harassment occurring in the first place than to try to intervene after the fact and prevent continuing conduct and, and reverse its effect. It's it's really difficult to see how an employer can can do that. So with that in mind, as we sort of aim to wrap this up in, in the next couple of minutes, there are a number of reasonable steps that can and should be in place all year round, obviously, not just as we approach, a, if you like, party season, but there are some tips and guidance, if you like, that that are applicable at all times. And, and the first is, and this won't be a surprise to many listeners, but the first is that all employers in Ireland really must have a written dignity at work policy. It should be reviewed on an annual basis to ensure that it's up to date and fit for purpose. It should be drafted in accordance with the statutory code of practice. And as I mentioned, that'll be in the resource section to this podcast. The code of practice governs you know, the, the sort of the contents of the policy, and it also maps out how an investigation process, both informal and formal, will work. And that's really important. A common feature from the case law in this area also is that employees who have a complaint about a line manager or a senior manager sometimes feel very unsure as to how they go about escalating that complaint if the line manager or a more senior manager is involved. So a policy does need to clearly signpost where complaints should be escalated to if the conventional sort of instruction to tell your manager or tell HR just won't work. This is really important. And as I say, if you have an up-to-date dignity at work policy, which has been reviewed and is aligned with the Code of Practice and Case Law and the Employment Equality Acts, then that is a really, really good start. The second tip is that an employer needs to train at the very least their managers and others with people responsibilities to recognise harassment in the first place, to prevent it occurring and to ensure that anti-retaliation protection is at all times respected. Again, we would recommend that Dignity at Work training is rolled out as, as frequently as, for example, some of the other business critical training is rolled out, such as information security and so forth. If we look at a case, a relatively recent case from the WRC, it's a case called a beauty therapist versus a beauty salon. There will be a copy of this in the resource section also. In this case, the adjudication officer listed out the problems with having simply a policy in place, but not doing anything about it. So in this particular case, the adjudication officer found that the employer did have a dignity at work policy in place. They found, however, that it was not adequate to prevent the complainant from suffering the sexual harassment that it found she did suffer. The adjudication officer noted that there were no adequate arrangements in place at all to ensure that employees knew about the existence of the policy or knew about the contents of the policy or knew anything about the importance of complying with the policy and that in effect the policy was not understood or acknowledged by staff at all. An aggravating factor in that particular case also was the person who was recorded as having drafted and approved the Dignity at Work policy was in fact the perpetrator of the sexual harassment and he himself was unaware of some of the examples of sexual harassment that were set out in there. And further, the employer had committed in the policy 
to training employees, but had not done so. The policy referred to a designated contact person being available and trained in all of these matters who would be available to provide support and advice. And none of that was in place. So in essence, what seemed to have happened in that case was actually quite a good dignity at work policy was put in place. But then it remained in a desk or somewhere else and it was not actually rolled out. And none of the commitments in the policy had been followed through on by the employer. Fundamentally, there were no meaningful internal systems in place to address these issues. The third piece of guidance that we would probably give is that management really should be encouraged to be vigilant generally. They do have a responsibility deriving from the statutory code of practices that I mentioned to prevent harassment occurring. Maybe a common sense approach to interpreting that is that at social events, managers should be encouraged and equipped to provide good example by treating everyone in the workplace with courtesy and respect, be vigilant for signs of harassment and take action before a problem escalates. Look at the format of a work-related social event. Is there anything that you think is incompatible with maintaining a self but celebratory environment? All of these are, are set out in the code of practice and have been mentioned in the case law also. So definitely worth taking note. Then if an issue does actually occur and it hasn't been prevented, so it's occurred from a practical common sense perspective, managers need to be equipped to respond sensitively to someone who makes a complaint. They need to be able to explain the procedures or very quickly direct someone to a colleague who can explain the procedures that need to be followed if there's a complaint of sexual harassment or harassment. They need to ensure that both parties, so the alleged victim and the alleged perpetrator, are treated fairly. Anti-retaliation protection must be respected and managers also have a responsibility to monitor and follow up on the situation after a complaint is made. There is a general responsibility resting with an employer to promote awareness of the organization's policy and complaint procedure. This seems like a tall order and it's not that every manager in every business has to absorb all of these responsibilities, but it certainly helps to focus the mind on ensuring that at least there are a number of people within the organization who are well-equipped and well-versed in navigating these policies and formal and informal investigation processes and at least managers should know who that person is or who that team is. So sometimes this can be delegated to the people team or it may sit elsewhere but it's just really important to ensure that managers are equipped to uphold the standards that are very likely articulated in an employer's dignity at work policy and and to avoid having a situation where there's a very significant disconnect between the policy and then the culture and conduct of its people, as evidenced in the case that I mentioned just a few moments ago. It's an interesting area. We could talk for a lot longer, but I always try to do these updates in about 15 or 20 minutes. So for now, thank you for listening to the Maples Group Irish Employment Law Podcast series. We will be launching a new series of the Maples Group Irish Employment Law Podcast soon. So check back in with us after the holidays for more information on that. If you have any questions or queries on any of the points covered today or on employment legal issues in general in Ireland, please do get in touch with us. And thanks for listening and subscribing. Thank you.